I think people often think that writing and directing is this sort of theater of control, right? And I kind of, the older I get, the more it's like, it's a theater of understanding how much you don't control and kind of dancing with that, like figuring that out. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a man forms a bond with his sister's son in director Mike Mills' drama, Come On, Come On. In a moving portrait of family and the connections between adults and children, the film tells the story of Johnny, a radio journalist who has to forge a relationship with his young nephew when they are thrown together on a cross-country trip. In addition to Come On, Come On, Mr. Mills' other directorial credits include the feature films 20th Century Women, Beginners, and Thumbsucker, and the documentary Does Your Soul Have a Cold? Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Mills shares insight into the making of Come On, Come On with fellow director Spike Jones. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you all for coming tonight. And Mike, thank you for the beautiful movie. Thank you for doing this, Spike. It means a lot to me. Oh, it means a lot to me. I, I've known Mike I, for 30 years, maybe? Uh, five. Five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's funny because whole, the whole movie is shot like a block from my apartment and a couple blocks from, oh, yeah. wh- from oh, yeah. where we met. Yeah. We, we met on Ludlow at this art gallery called the alleged gallery in the early nineties that our friend Aaron Rose did. And, uh, when we met, you were doing a lot of graphic design posters, album covers. Um, and I was taking skate photos, making skate videos and magazines. And, uh, did you, did you know you were gonna be a director at that point? We were probably in our early twenties. Well, when we met, you were actually already doing quite well as a director. I was already making music videos. You were doing yeah, your ads and stuff. And I met you kind of through Lance because yeah. you and Lance were Lance Accord's amazing now director and DP. And I think Lance introduced us. And yeah, by that time I kind of had my eyes on it because I saw Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line and just living in the same neighborhood as Jim Jarmusch made me feel like maybe I could be a director or um, I'm unemployed and I, I feel like I'm in it. Uh, unmade Jim Jarmusch film, so maybe this will all work out. <laughs> the um, the I love the movie. I loved it so much, and um, I saw it a year ago. And you just said the meticulous. I can just see how much you crafted it and crafted it in so meticulous and beautiful. And um, what one of the things I was thinking about watching the movie and all of your movies is the movies are so you. They're so beautifully you, and. One of the things that a director, some directors, very smart, smarter than me, said that the one thing a director does, like on set, there's somebody that does everything that knows how to shoot the movie, light the movie, sound. But the one thing the director does is um, is create the tone of the movie, uh. and it's such a hard thing to describe. Like, how would you? How do you think about tone? The end tone, like of what you see here, or just how to make it? Yeah. Well, I think because my movies live and die by performances and like the people and the actors and the and their lifiness, like the aliveness of them, right? So, and that's really weird and gossamer and strange and hard to put your finger on. And it's like, um, you're just trying to create a certain aliveness. I've heard my movies described as being gentle a lot. 
And I think my sets are a little like that. They're like playful. You're not trying to, I always trying to disguise it as like play. I'm always playing music. I'm always tail slating. I'm always doing everything I can to make it feel like nothing crazy and intense is happening. And I feel like that kind of helps everyone kind of relax into something. So, um, meaning like the, 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 what's happening on the set and what's happening in front of the camera. Do you, do you ever say action or do you ever say cut or rarely just, just flows from the set? Yeah. Right or like, and like people like Joaquin, Joaquin just has a, I'm sure you experienced this, like just knows exactly everything you're doing, right. Without looking, it's behind his head. He knows everything that's going on. So he just knows when the camera's rolling, he just starts. So I love that. You'll just start saying stuff. And we all just, the crew just got really attuned to like, we just need to be ready. And you can kind of feel it when he's kind of getting ready and just camera better be on. And I love that. And then everyone just knows after the end of day one, you're tail slate everything and we'll, we'll kind of neaten it up at the end. That's amazing. And the, uh, with the dialogue, it's so, it's so alive and so natural. And you pulled it off, you know, with the, with the actors, with all the actors and, the, you know, the, the, with the, with the boy, what's the boy's name? Woody. Woody, Woody Norman. Yeah. Well, first off, where did you find him and how did you find him and what was that process? Um, well, do you guys know he's British? No. He's like a little London kid. So you go cut and he goes, oh, doop, 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 you know, so he's doing an accent. He's 10. He's doing that accent. And so we, you know, we thought me and Joaquin were both like, well, this is all fun. This conversation we've been having for like almost a year now, and maybe I'm going to do the movie, but let's admit this movie's never going to happen because you're never going to find that kid. And you know, this is all hypothetical. Uh, so we p- put aside a lot of money, a lot of time to do this like endless search for this kid. And sure enough, he comes in like the first round and he's like kid number two. And he was very, you know, his tape was really exciting and amazing. And I was like, let's, you know, I want to see him. I was like, oh, he's in London. I was like, oh, he's an American kid in London. Uh, no, no, he lives there. Oh, okay, he's an American kid lives in London. No, no, he's British. It's like, okay. Um, so, and then Woody is like that. Um, I just did a lot of press with Woody. And he's now 12. He has an amazing, like, resolve. He has an amazing ability to not perform for everyone. He's, like, there. He's available. He's really perceptive. He's super sharp. And he's a really good actor. But he's not, like, for the camera. Or when he does, like, if he was here right now, he wouldn't be, like, going for you all to win you over. You know, he would say things that would make you go, like, (gasps) you know, but he's not for you, which is really great for a kid actor. And he did that in his first audition so that he could tell... He was often looking away from the camera. He's often like rubbing his face. He's often doing these things that like you're not supposed to do, which are gold. And with the three of them, how much did you rehearse with them and create the dialogue with them and the words come out of their mouth so naturally? I'm sure it's, it's sort of, it seems like there's a, a obviously a very strong script, and but you sort of used the, them as people. To- yeah, I definitely like keeping it alive all the way through, right? So worked on the script forever. And me and Joaquin worked on the script a lot, which is a really fun process. Just like I would act out all the other parts and he would do his part, which is so intimidating. But it became so fun and funny and and he's so smart and and could really get to beautiful things about like how I was trying to win you all over or how I was trying to be, how I was maybe expositional or virtue signaling or whatever. And he would like very funnily point it out to me. And, and that's so great to have like a comrade, partner, companion like that. So there's already adjustments to the to the dialogue happening there or things we would say back and forth that I would just write down, you know. And that's after I worked on the script for like a year or so. 
and then you get to the set. And I definitely encourage people to like bring their intelligence, bring their whole selves, respond to the moment. And, and Joaquin and Woody especially love to kind of razz each other or like not try to throw each other off, but like surprise each other or just, they just, they both like being surprised or just, you know, who knows what's going to happen next. And so I find that, you know, you tell an actor, you know, this, your co-authors with me, it, this is the script, but, you know, follow the spirit of it. And then often they'll just do your lines really great. <laughs> if you tell them that right before, but there is a lot of improvising. There's like, often it's like my line, my line, my line, my line interpreted differently, my line. And then a, a new line that's like genius, you know? So there's a lot of play like that. That's amazing. The, um, yeah, it feels so fluid and it feels like they, uh, yeah, it, it, that, but that is like when somebody makes your, when they take your writing and they make it sound good, like they can make you sound like a good writer yes. when sometimes maybe the line isn't or, or somebody else can make your writing sound really bad, but yeah, yeah they, uh, they're all incredible. And, um, what about the, uh, the process of editing? What was, what was that like and how did you, yeah, how did, how did it arrive here? Um, long so it was pandemic time so we, we got done shooting in end of january 2020 so started editing i mean jen vicarello is my editor is an awesome person and really um uh not afraid to contradict me which is gold right it's a beautiful thing and a lovely person who was also the script supervisor on the set and your editor was the script supervisor because i don't really use the script supervisor sorry that's incredible so you didn't edit during the film that's a, that's so cool. I heard that Noah Bombach does that. <laughs> and his editor, told me that. his editor is the script supervisor? No, no, he just starts editing. Because I always find that assembly to be the most depressing thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. And it takes me like months to recover from my own assembly. It's right? brutal. Does everyone yeah. have the same experience? It takes a long time to come back. So I was like, let's just start fresh when we're done. So then pandemic starts and and we can't be in the same room. And I have a, I have a nine-year-old. And so I'm doing Zoom homeschooling to like one and then I would go into the edit. And it took a long time for us just to get the ever cast work and the whole thing. I'm sure there's a lot of people in here share that experience. And um, so it was like an 11 month edit. It was like your style of editing. I thought of you a lot. And then, and then after like month two, you're blind, right? To your own material. So you ask nice friends and, and lots of people, you give them links. And that becomes like such a key part of the process is eliciting notes and being like, really like, tell me everything. And I, th- I learned a lot of this from you, I feel like, because you are so good at like inviting criticism and like handling it and not hiding from it and being like excited by critique. I've seen you do that over the years. And, and, and it's punk and it's, and it's like really powerful when you can do that. So I, I learned to be more like that. But then interpreting it and interpreting the sea of like different voices. Totally it's, contradictory opinions and trying to figure out what feels true to you. Yeah. And then there's certain things that like, oh, everyone points at this scene and then you learn, oh, it's the scene before that's killing that scene or, you know. So I feel like that's almost as important as following your own instincts and following your own, obviously following your own instincts is first, right? Obviously having some sense of what your stomach feels when you're watching a scene is first. But then because I want to make a movie for you all, I have to like really get good at listening and get good at finding out what is actionable or whatever, what I can take from all that sea of stuff. And I feel like no one talks about that quite enough. You know? Which part? Just that, that like so much of directing is 
is like not the part that you're in control, not the part where you're the author, not the part where you're making things happen. It's the part where you're reacting to stuff and learning how to deal with like your failures, learning how to deal with plan A, B, C, and D didn't work out. How about E? Let's go for E, you know? Yeah, because you're still trying to make you're trying to make something personal, but you're also trying to communicate. It's like a conversation with somebody. You want to say what you mean and be true to yourself, but also you want to be heard, yeah. and you want the other person to understand you and see you. And so, make editing the movie is a lot like that. Yeah, yeah. And then I think because I make really personal movies, like this one came from me and my kid. I'm so embarrassed <laughs> in a way by the time I get to show it to you, like. I'm so, I'm so scared of just making a horrible memoir. And I'm sure there's 25% of the people who think I did. <laughs> I think that's been proven actually by, a, uh, by a testing in Los Angeles, in, the, in New York city. Anyways. Uh, um, so I'm really passing out in, the cards after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things are on, you know, it's in the twenties. Uh, anyways. Um, I'm so terrified of that. I really do want to like, Think about the strangers in the dark room who are eventually watching the film, who are eventually finishing the film for you, right? Like if they don't watch and aren't engaged, it's all that labor, all that effort, all that heart that not just you, but so many people that you talked into joining your pirate ship with you. It's all for naught, right? That keeps me up at night more than anything. Yeah. I thought like watching it finish now, it's like a, a year later, I think I saw the first cut back then. The, uh, and I was thinking about like the edit philosophy that you discovered and like how like you are making, you know, you, sh- you write the movie, you shoot the movie. And then obviously when you edit, you kind of, it remind me, I can't remember if we talked about this, but it reminded me of trying to figure out how to edit ab- adaptation. Mm. And um, I remember you coming by the office and uh-huh. uh, when we were editing it um, at that house over uh-huh. on Curson. Uh-huh. Um, and you actually, we took your dog. We bar- we yeah. had your dog. My dog jumped out the window. Yeah, yeah. His dog jumped out the second floor window of this house, just like scared the hell out of us. <laughs> but, um, editing adaptation took a long time to figure out what the edit language was, what, yeah. the, how, what the language of the editing and the voiceover and the style of it. And, um, it's like a discovery. It's like, you have to discover the language for, of the film, um, and so what, how would you describe discovering the, that and what it is? Uh, well, I agree with you. It's like, um, Miranda and I often say, it's like at the beginning of the film project, you don't have the brain to finish the film project. And so you have to like go through the ex- like embodied experience of all your failures and triumphs to like build the brain to then finally finish the movie. And the to build older, the brain? Yeah, to build the brain. Cause like the beginning, you just, you, it's been impossible for you to finish your own movie that you wrote and directed. You just can't. And I feel like it's really true. And uh, the older I get, the more kind of like, I love Fellini and his writing about, you know, his, his interviews. He's such a deeply spiritual person. I feel like him and Pima Chodron should get together and be a couple because they're both really about how you don't have control over your life, how you don't have control over all these things that mean the most to you. And Fellini's often talking about like this thing that you summon that's not you that has its own personality, its own needs and requirements and summons others to you and summons different solutions and all that. So you enter the edit thinking you know what you're doing and you're slowly like beat down. And then the film kind of tells you like hopefully what it is or what it needs to be. And it has some relationship to your original idea or sometimes like quite a deep relationship. I actually always find it's like, oh, it's a lot what I hoped it would be, but it, it went through this whole Wizard of Oz thing to get there. 
But it's a lot about like, yeah, listening to the material, all the things you thought were great aren't, right? All this thing, all the scenes you thought you like crushed it on the day. Do you have this? You get, you know, like three months in editing, maybe the first month that editing, you're like, yeah, I crushed that scene. And then like four months in editing, whatever, you're like, oh, it's the worst scene in the movie, isn't it? And so you learn that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, it's again, I think people often think that writing and directing is this sort of theater of control, right? And I kind of, the older I get, the more it's like, it's a theater of understanding how much you don't control and kind of dancing with that, like figuring that out. Yeah, that's well said. The, um, what, um, I love your hair so much. Oh, thank you. I love your hair. I just had to say that. (laughs) (laughs) The, um, what about the music? Cause I felt like, um, the, you told me that you said the national scored this. The Aaron and Bryce Dessner did from the national. The, the um, well, actually, uh, before I ask about the music, it rem- that reminds me of, what was the short film you did for them? It's called, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm easy to find. I'm, and I almost said, I'm not easy to find, which is <laughs> not the title. It's both. both <laughs> yes. the, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm easy to find. Has anyone seen this film? It's a half hour. From, yeah. It's so beautiful. I was thinking it'd be really cool to screen it here because mm. it'd be so cool to see on the big screen. It's a, it's 30 minutes. Is that right? 23, 23 minutes. Yeah. It's a film that he has the same actress who's who, who, Alicia Vikander. Yeah. So she's like, 30 or something, 25, or, but she plays the life of this girl. So she plays the baby, the toddler, a child, you know, a teenager. And it's like, it's real. And it goes through her whole life and it's really profoundly beautiful. And um, what, did that inform this or were these related in somehow? Or? So I did that um, as I was trying to write this or, and that really helped Just I was kind of depressed and stalled out in 2016, sort of like really not knowing what to do. And I met that band and I liked that band a lot and, and they're lovely. And they're like, um, they're just amazing collaborators. Like they taught me so much about collaborating and they brought me in and they let me have all their sketches of their songs. It's all their stems and just like do whatever you want with it. And I ended up making that and then ended up helping them with a the record. And then while that was happening, I was writing and often writing at their studio because it's often really fun to be around someone else's art project or someone else's big intense thing and all the stress is on them, you know? And I like being like cuddled up right next to that and writing my thing. Somehow that really helps. And, and they're just lovely friends, you know? And so we started talking about this, you know, potentially them scoring this and the orphan story that you see in the movie. So that's Aaron Dessner's daughter's game that she plays all the time. And I was at their house and she was doing it and talking about it. And I was like, the next day I was like, Aaron, can I take that please? And, and we asked Ingrid and she said yes. And, and she recorded it really exactly on a voice memo to me. And it's pretty much exactly what appears in the film. So that's how that kind of came about. Yeah, it's cool. They feel, they feel like siblings. Yeah, they definitely, they grew up together or that film helped me so much and all the camaraderie and all the friendships and all the, pot stirring that happened with that project really is it fed into this and I was practicing black and white you know and um it's on is it online yeah yeah you can just look up my name and I'm easy to find or the national I'm easy to find and it's on YouTube the uh yeah go home tonight because it'll be a good (laughs) because you need more of my filmmaking tonight yeah you'll have good dreams the um when oh the music 
Yeah. It's also, is there like an evolution of the music was like when you guys were working on it, is it like the, from the beginning, you know, through the film, is there sort of a discussion of the music evolving? Yeah. I mean, music is so hard. I, I find music so mysterious and I led them in so many wrong directions. And then I have kind of, I didn't fire them, but I was like, you guys just need to stop because you're so nice and I'm just screwing up. And, and they really nicely did. They really nicely stopped. Yeah. But I mean, they stopped at like, they could have been really bummed because they had done a lot of work all by my direction. And, and they were like, Oh, we're bummed, but get it. And I was like, I, I just, just hang on. I don't know what's happening. And maybe, the, maybe I can't use your stuff. Um, and then Jen Vecarello, my editor picked out a weird piece of theirs that uses AI. It was so strange. It was this drone thing. It's crazy piece. And she just had a hunch and we started putting up, we couldn't find music to put with the kids. There's the real interviews of the real kids. It's so hard because you end up coloring them in all these ways that you don't want to. It's like manipulating what they're saying, but we needed some kind of music. And it was like this kind of sea, this kind of wash that was really beautiful. And they took the, they, so I said, what about that piece? They started playing with some chords that are in there. They have this very iterative twin brother process where they send things back and forth. And they're like, they're amazing because they're like, they, they just need to be together all the time, both physically and musically. And they're really competitive with each and other. And they are twin brothers. They're twins. So they're like one set of chords and then one set of chords plus a twist. And then, and then, oh, okay, I see your twist and I'm putting my clarinets over that. And it's, it's like a generative machine or gener- organic situation. And then, but anyways, what they got to, they were watching the film a lot. And to me, I need to make the music as you're editing the film. Couldn't do it afterwards because it's too important. I want to show the music and the film together to people understand what the film is. It's like part of the process. And um, they kind of got to the space where I feel like they knew it better than I did, which is lovely. And it's kind of like the, I feel like the sound that they came up with, it's like the feeling between Johnny and, and Jesse. It's the feeling between Joaquin and Woody. It's like their heart space together. And then I had a great friend, Leslie Feist, who I think is here, who is um, another musician who's also friends of the National. And her voice, we, I asked her to, to sing on it. And it became sort of this like really wonderful, deep female energy, female presence that we often used around Viv's character. And it was just a lovely group of people that like get along easily and add, everyone's additive, you know. But what was made is a real example of like, I didn't have that in my mind at all, you know? And it's just because of this layered multi-person process that it, that came about. Yeah. I love the music. It's really beautiful. The, um, what, um, do you have any question you want me to ask you? (laughs) Uh, No. <laughs> I mean, maybe privately, but no. Okay, I'll ask you in a second. Yeah, uh, one I was thinking about the, the I, it hit me today actually watching the movie again that beginners being about your father or about a father and you know mm-hmm. and twentieth um, century women being about a mother and then this one I thought was about a kid, but I realized it made me think about all the movies that that movie that beginners is about as much being a son to a father and. 20th century being a son to a mother and this is trying to figure out what parenting means and um there's not a question I was just very proud of myself for having that revelation (laughs) (laughs) comment (laughs) that's sweet um well yeah I think 
it's all relational, right? I think what I'm super interested in is like how your understanding of yourself can only happen in relationship to other people. And especially like your primary people, you know, in your life, your family, your, it doesn't have to be your biological families, like the family that shows up, like the people who are there. And hopefully all the families I'm showing in these three films are kind of like broken in a positive way, right? Or there's something non-traditional, non-biological about them that's like very positive. But that's my big thing, I think, is how people create each other and or your understanding of the world that's always made in collaboration or like in, in this like mirror sounding board echo communing with someone else, right? And it's like positive and negative. Um, you know, obviously every son is also the person that's creating the father and vice versa. Yeah, I love that. I love that about your work. And I'm excited to be here in like 40 years when we're old and see your whole body. We're going to do a retrospective cool. here when we're super old. Right. And we'll see this whole evolution of your life and your relationship to the world. Yeah. Usually I, um, a journalist right now will say like, so who's next? Mike. <laughs> I'm like, I'm out of family, man. I'm sorry. Uh, um. I was also thinking one other thing that popped in my head. I don't know if you remember this. About 20 years ago, I ran into you at the Oakland airport and I was flying back from San Francisco and I was writing where the wild things are and I was pretty overwhelmed with it, both the writing and the sort of undertaking of how to even make the film. And we were talking about being on set and being stressed and like how you manage stress. And you taught me how to meditate on the airplane. Do you remember this? The breathing exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought that maybe we could end with Mike. Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) This is for when you're on set and when you're stressed and when you're just like, yeah. So Mike, if you would kindly teach us how to manage our anxiety on set. I feel like telling a story about you now. Um, Spike used to call me all the time in the 90s. And pretend I had, uh, and like you would call, prank call me and totally fool me. Like, yeah, I, I have a pantsuit company and I, I need graphics. I need a lot of graphics, like really loud graphics. And I'd be like, cool, man. I don't think I do pantsuits. And that's what, no, you do. You just haven't done any. I haven't done mine. You're like, you just totally get me. And I'd be on the phone for like half an hour. And then finally you start laughing. And I'd be like, you fuck. God. Um, I loved Frank calls. They're so fun. You could like create a whole character and world and like you yeah. know, prank your friend. And-, and then I would think like never going to happen again. Sure, like six months later, be some other character would call me and just completely fool me for so long. Here's the breathing exercise. You breathe in for five. All right, we're going to do it? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Uh, so you breathe okay, wait, let me set the tone. Okay, you're running out of light. The actors are stressed. They don't like the scene. You're, they think you're stupid. Uh, the DP wants to use a different lens, put the camera in a different place. And you're about to explode. Go, Mike. Uh, so you breathe in for five. Ready? Breathe in. <gasps> Through your nose. You hold it for seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then you exhale for nine. Through your mouth. <sighs> So the point is, is to do each step longer and it calms you the down, I swear. It and, worked. Well, it's often like when you're watching the monitor, right? You're, you just get so wound up. I had a really funny moment with Joaquin. He just never sees me watching the monitor and some, well, towards that, no, it was a reshoot. 
for whatever reason, his island kept, like I was right there for one, for one part of it. And he just kept cracking up. He's like, Mills, what is your problem? Have you been looking like that the whole time, the whole movie? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm praying. I'm doing so many things into this monitor to make you do what you do. You have no idea. <laughs> and he just, he could not stop laughing for the whole rest of the shoot. It's like, you're over there doing that face right now, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, I'm like this, you know? So I'm like this often because I'm just praying, you know? <laughs> so I had to learn how to breathe and kind of relax so I can actually see what's happening. Well, thank you for teaching us that. Oh, thanks thank so much for, for coming, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.